and welcome back. This is Bala Scuba with another Scuba Cast. This is Scuba Cast number four. And before we get into it, I have some relatively exciting news. I have a bit of a programming note of sorts, and that is that I was finally able to get the Scuba Cast onto a lot of podcasting apps. So if you have Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, or you use anything other than, you know, YouTube in order to watch the podcasts, uh, there is now a good chance that you can find me there. Uh, if there is a podcasting app that I'm still not on, feel free to let me know, but it seems like I was finally able to get that done, mostly thanks to the people at Anchor.fm. They did most of the work for me. They really did help me out because I was struggling with that for a long, long time. But that is finally done, and that does make me happy. With that said, let's get into the Scuba Cast. Now, the Scuba Cast is, uh, three, is made up of three parts. Uh, we're going to start with a news-type item today. That is going to be uh, basically my story or my interpretation of uh, VidCon, which Hannah and I did go to. And I wanted to talk about that at least a little bit. The second part is going to be the main story today. And that is going to be game developers and their online communities. I wanted to talk about how much credit or blame game developers should and could take for how their online communities kind of act and produce what everything that goes along with being a fan of an online community um, for a video game, specifically for a video game. Uh, and I'll talk about why I wanted to specifically put it on video games. Uh, but that's going to be the second part of the Scuba Cast today. And then the third part is going to be the wild card. Uh, I said that I was going to be doing a Q&A. I still am going to be doing that, but I'm going to be doing it a little bit differently. I'm going to basically tell a story about my channel, uh, just kind of the story of the channel, and I will probably answer all of the questions along the way, at least all the ones that I got asked. That's definitely going to happen. Uh, this is going a little bit differently than I normally go. I am actually doing this without any notes. The last few times I have had notes in front of me uh, to make sure I got all my facts straight, uh, but this time I am kind of going uh, from just my head, which I think will make it a little bit uh, easier for me to get through it, and it won't necessarily uh, be as jilted as it was before. At least I felt it was. So hopefully a little bit smoother ride this time all the way through. With that said, let's get into the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and that is VidCon. I'm going to start from the beginning here. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with VidCon, VidCon is basically a large convention designed for anybody and everybody that makes internet video. Anybody that makes videos on the internet, VidCon is supposed to be the place for you. It's held in Anaheim, which is lucky for me because I live in a town named Anaheim, so it was literally about 10 blocks away from me, maybe even less. Depends on your definition of block, but uh, I could have walked there if I wanted to. Could have Ubered there. I drove. Not that, not that bad. Uh, just ended up parking in the Disneyland parking lot. 
But um, we went and we had a relatively good time. Uh, but I did want to talk about my interpretations and uh, kind of anything that I took away from VidCon. And I think that there are some things that I wanted to talk about that other people didn't necessarily talk about. Uh, but uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with VidCon, there's basically three levels of tickets that you can purchase for VidCon. And then there's a fourth level that you cannot purchase. And we'll go into that more into detail later. Uh, but in terms of tickets that you can purchase, there's the lowest level, which is community. Uh, that's where most people buy their tickets. That's the, that's the price point they want. And that gives you access to a lot of VidCon. Most of VidCon. About 70% of VidCon. Uh, but it's designed for people that don't necessarily work in the industry. They don't make videos themselves. They are just there to see the creators that are there to uh, give panels and they're there to kind of experience everything, but aren't not there to necessarily gain anything financially from it. Uh, then the next level is creator. That's the one that I went for. The idea is that this is for creators that are looking to improve their channels, maybe do uh, some meet and greets and some collaborations. Uh, there are exclusive panels regarding uh, audio setup and uh, video setup and stuff like that, and those are exclusive to the creator level. Uh, I did have that ticket. Uh, the next highest one I did not have, and I don't have too much to say about it, but uh, the industry level ticket was the highest one. And the industry ticket was basically for people that worked in the industry. It, it kind of makes sense, but you could have bought it even if you didn't work in the industry. Uh, they had access to more exclusive panels about you know marketing and managing uh, larger aspects of internet video. I can't really speak much about that because I didn't have that ticket, uh, but I didn't speak to anybody that had it as well. It seemed like there weren't too many people that were in the industry there. I never really got a sense of what company they worked for, what they were doing there, or anything like that. I really only interacted uh, with people at the community or creator level. But on top of those three tickets, there was a secret ticket uh, that you couldn't buy. It was something that you had to be invited for, and that is the featured creator ticket. Uh, those were the yellow ones if you were there. And that was for the people that actually hosted the panels that were basically the main attraction of VidCon. If you went to VidCon, chances are you were there because you wanted to see somebody. And if you wanted to see somebody, chances are they were a featured creator. So you got people like uh, Good Mythical Morning and Philip DeFranco and Markiplier, all the big names on YouTube. They were the ones with the featured creator ticket, so to speak and everybody else was on a level that was far lower than them. So that's basically the setup going into VidCon. Uh, Hannah and I went, there were a couple people that we definitely wanted to see. We kind of wanted to go to a big convention, uh, especially since we were going to be moving up to Portland in a year, uh, well, a little bit less than a year now. But we wanted to go to a convention 
that was here, was relatively big, and VidCon sounded like the perfect opportunity for that. So we went and we had a good time. Overall, it was relatively fun. Uh, with that said, it definitely didn't meet my expectations. Uh, there were definitely a lot of things that I felt could have been run better. Uh, overall, the sense that I got was that it was pretty disorganized. Uh, based on what I have heard from other people, this is the most organized VidCon that they've had, which does not say much about the other VidCons, uh, because it definitely did not seem to run well for me. Uh, there were a lot of times where I wanted to get somewhere, didn't know how to get there, the maps that they provided were not good, uh, they would just have uh, names of places that really didn't tell you the location. So I'd be like, okay, I want to go see this panel. They say, oh, that's at the community stage. Okay, where's the community stage, right? That doesn't help me at all. Uh, they did have room numbers, but the Anaheim Convention Center uh, does not have it organized well. So uh, for instance, I believe room 407 was in one building and room 437 was in a completely different building. And they did not really give you any sense of how the layout happened. You just kind of had to know. And it took us a while to figure out where stuff was. Uh, with that said, we did eventually figure out where stuff was. And when we got to the right place, a lot of times we just weren't sure we were in the right place. I mentioned stages. The one that uh, was supposed to be the biggest was the spotlight stage. The spotlight stage was a big stage. There were, it was a full on stage. Like you could have a concert on this stage. Uh, and there were seats out front and there were people sitting there, but there was no indication anywhere uh, that you were in the right place. Um, they wouldn't tell you what was going to be on the spotlight stage or when, uh, in the lead up to what the panel was going to be. There was no indication that that panel was happening at all until about 30 seconds before it started. So, for instance, I wanted to see uh, Philip DeFranco. He was there. Uh, I've been, I've watched him for a long time. I haven't watched him as much recently, but uh, he was one of the biggest names on YouTube for a long, long time. So when I first started, he was one of the people that I watched uh, and I was interested in what he wanted to talk about. So we sat at the uh, spotlight stage and we were there probably about 10 minutes early. No indication that he was coming out. Nothing that said uh, Philip DeFranco anywhere on the stage. And that was a little concerning considering this is supposed to be the spotlight stage, right? The big stage. And we didn't even know we were in the right spot. Uh, we just had to go off of an app or a website that we had to have on our phone. And when you're relying on us to look at our phone the whole time that we're at a physical location, uh, you probably have not set things up properly. Uh, every question that was asked on every panel that I went to had to be asked on Twitter, which I thought was a strange way of doing it. It helps filter out the, the questions that people don't want to answer or are awkward or are off-putting, but at the same time, 
it was a very disconnected uh, way of asking questions. So a lot of times the panel or the people on the panel would just kind of scroll through their phone looking for a good question. And there would be like five, 10 seconds of just silence. That was awkward. So it didn't necessarily fix a lot of problems. It fixed some problems, but then it caused others. Uh, and the whole convention was run that way, apparently by rule. That was something that had to be done that way. Uh, but uh, there were definitely, uh, well, I would just say a lack of representation, uh, both, both on the corporate level and on the creator level of people that I thought should be there. That was probably my biggest takeaway from VidCon. They rented out a ton of space. Uh, they probably rented out two to three times as much space as BlizzCon does, which is the other uh, big convention that I've been to at the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, they, at VidCon, they rented out way more than BlizzCon does. Uh, BlizzCon rents out like one gigantic room and VidCon rented that out, another building and like the, the upstairs area and a, a little alleyway that led to the hotels. They, they rented out a lot of space and it was pretty empty. Uh, they did not need all that space. Uh, but when you were in the main area, the big room, the, the room where BlizzCon normally is, uh, you could tell that there just wasn't that much corporate sponsorship. And what was there was definitely not geared toward YouTube. In fact, YouTube in particular was not really represented there. Uh, they had very little presence. Uh, they had a lounge that was just for creators only, uh, but I didn't even go into it because it looked like a nightclub in there, and that's just not for me. And I figured there would be, uh, well, some kind of drama or fight going on in there, and it turns out, uh, based on the videos that I've seen afterwards, I was probably right. Uh, so I, I didn't even check out the only thing that I saw with YouTube's name on it. Uh, there were, there was absolutely no Twitch that I saw. Twitch was not there anywhere. And they're a huge name in internet video. Granted, they're almost exclusively gaming. There are other people on Twitch, but when you think of Twitch, you think of uh, video game streaming. And that might be one of the reasons that they weren't there. It didn't seem like VidCon held... Uh, gaming channels in high regard, they definitely wanted to focus on other creators. So as a video game creator, well, not a game creator, but a video game video creator, I guess I can phrase it. Uh, I definitely felt left out at VidCon that this just wasn't for me, even though I had uh, more subscribers than people that felt they were the biggest deal at VidCon. <laughs> that was very strange. Uh, there were definitely people that had very small channels that still felt like they were a big deal there. Uh, but as somebody that made uh, video game content, uh, definitely not for me. That's not what that that's not what that convention was about. It was about people that put their face in front of the camera. That's what that was really about. Uh, speaking of that. Uh, you would assume that if I'm, you're going to get a ton of people that use cameras 
for their career together that there would be somebody trying to sell them cameras there, right? This is a convention, so, you know, you would assume Canon, Nikon, Kodak, GoPros, you know, places like, big companies like that would be there trying to sell you cameras. That was not the case. I believe there were one, there was one booth uh, for cameras, maybe two, but they were so small, it didn't seem like they were actually trying to sell us a camera as much as they were trying to get us to uh, take a picture with a hashtag. That was big at VidCon. Um, in terms of microphones, right? Everybody there had to use a microphone. Uh, there was one company that I saw trying to sell microphones, and most of the time, uh, they just had people sing into the microphones. Uh, they didn't necessarily try to sell me a microphone, which was, I thought, very interesting. Uh, and then the other sponsors that were there were not necessarily geared anywhere toward internet video, just completely different industries. Like Invisalign had a lot of presence there. They were selling jelly beans and there was a, a booth with like a trampoline or something in it and they had a small little Ferris wheel. I don't, under, I don't necessarily understand why they chose VidCon to pump a lot of money. Invisalign, for those of you that don't know, is a retainer for your teeth that is clear. So I, I know that they wanted to reach a teenage demographic and VidCon was definitely a place for them to do that. It just seemed like an odd placement from the outside. Um, so for the most part, I was underwhelmed with uh, how much was actually there in terms of the corporate sponsorship and things to do outside of panels. And I know that I wasn't alone in that because there were a ton of people just hanging out not really doing anything, just hanging out outside. And that's not something that I'm used to seeing at conventions. Normally when I go to a convention, uh, there are people that are just kind of stressed out because they want to see so much and they have to choose between those things. When I went to VidCon, it was definitely people waiting around for something that they wanted to do uh, for that time to come. Overall, it seemed like on the community level, what was available to uh, the general masses, uh, that was definitely just normal teenage stuff that was available. So they had a Nerf shooting arena, they had an inflatable obstacle course, uh, they were giving away ice cream and M&Ms and stuff like that. It was not geared toward anybody that worked in internet video. Uh, there wasn't any kind of sense of community between the creators. They were not necessarily trying to sell to creators, as far as I could tell. From what I could tell, they were selling to two levels. They were selling to the featured creators, right? The, the special people that get invited, and they were selling to the community, which they thought was going to be primarily made up of 13 to 17 year olds which is a demographic on YouTube that most people try to hit. So based on what I've seen after I left VidCon, uh, there was a lot of, well, there was a lot of fun stuff to do if you were a featured creator. There were several lounges that they had exclusive access to. 
uh, I'm told that YouTube and Twitch had exclusive lounges for the featured creators, but of course I didn't see it because I didn't have access to it because I wasn't a featured creator. I just bought the, the second tier ticket, which didn't give me access to it. Uh, overall, I felt it was an interesting experience, uh, but I would not recommend it to people unless, and, and this is kind of a big unless, unless you look at the schedule for VidCon, you see a lot of people that you really want to meet, and you think that listening to them talk about their channel for 20 minutes each, every time you see their name, you know, about 20 minutes each, uh, is going to be worth your money. But at a ticket that I believe was over $200 and seeing maybe um, maybe five to ten people that I was interested in seeing. And I got to see some of them, including a, a surprise from a Husky Starcraft. That was awesome. I got to see him. He didn't really get to talk much uh, because it wasn't about him. Um, but for me, it was not necessarily worth the money that I spent on it and I live here I didn't have to fly I didn't have to book a hotel and I still felt like it it wasn't necessarily worth the money uh, then again I only went two out of the three days I actually worked on one of those days so I didn't get to experience the full con but I still felt like I got a, a good sense of everything that was going on there as for Husky Starcraft it seems like he's doing well uh, he's one of my big inspirations for getting onto YouTube. I'll talk about that more later um, in the wild card today, but I was very happy to see Husky Starcraft, at least uh, see him in person. He's uh, managing a, a YouTube food channel uh, that goes, uh, well, her name is Rosina Pansino, and she does Nerdy Nummies, and it's it's a pretty big channel. She's a pretty big deal, and I'm happy to see that he is able to translate some of that early YouTube success into a career, even though he clearly got sick of StarCraft. It, it happens to all of us. We'll, we'll talk about that more later, but uh, that is my overall impression about VidCon. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things that if you are interested in VidCon, I was not able to answer uh, in this kind of short amount of time, but I wanted to kind of get my thoughts together and out there. So that is VidCon, and that is the first part of the ScubaCast today. The second part of the ScubaCast is going to be our main topic, and I'm going to talk about this quite a bit. I might not have all my facts straight. Like I said, I don't have any notes in front of me. I'm kind of going off the cuff here. Uh, so hopefully it goes a little bit more smoothly and I can keep a train of thought a little bit longer than I did last time. But our main topic today is going to be game developers and their online communities. Now this is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a long time and I'm happy to get it to start talking about it today. It has been something that's kind of been in the back of my mind uh, since I started Let's Playing pretty much, since I started my YouTube channel where I play video games. I think that I want to limit this to video game companies primarily because I feel like they're in a unique position. They have a relationship to their online communities that a lot of other media don't have. Uh, should you release a book? Should you release a movie? A lot of times, should you even release a television show? 
an ongoing series, you have a relationship with your fans, but it is very disconnected, I feel. If you release a book, that's it. You release the book, you hope people like it, and if they do, maybe you write another one, right? Maybe you write a direct sequel, maybe you write something completely different, but you don't necessarily have an ongoing relationship with your readers as somebody that wrote a book. Same with the movie. You release the movie and hopefully people like it. And if they do, maybe you write a sequel or maybe you get a better job doing something completely else. If you write a television show, a lot of times you just kind of release it and hope for the best. There are some cases where they do respond to user feedback, right? The, the fan feedback on the television shows, but uh, a lot of times they're held separate. You have what the fans think, you have what the critics think, and, and you have what the showrunners want or what the producers want on the television show. So that's kind of how those industries work. With video games, I feel like it's different. I feel like with video games, there is an ongoing relationship that happens between the video game developers and the people that play the video games themselves. And I think that is a relationship that some companies take advantage of, other companies ignore, and I think that is a part of how I would evaluate a game developer is how they are able to use their online community. There are negative aspects of having an online community and there are positive aspects of having an online community. We're gonna start with the negative ones, uh, but keep in mind, I will get to the positive ones. I don't want you thinking that uh, online communities are all negative. I will go into to detail here, but let's start with toxic communities. Uh, this primarily happens from what I have seen, because uh, I obviously haven't played a ton of modern games, but when it comes to the toxic communities, the most common thing that I have found between the games is that there is an esports component to the game. If you release a multiplayer game, a game where it's especially a team versus another team and each one is a different player, right? They're an actual person and they're playing with people against people. It causes conflict a lot of the time because you are on a team, you don't have complete control over whether you win or lose. So you count on your teammates to win, right? We all understand the concept of, of teamwork and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to online matchmaking and online gaming, a lot of times since you rely on your teammates, should they not be up to your standard or you think that they're doing something wrong, you'll go and kind of harass those people. That, that's what the toxic uh, community that you hear about stems from, I feel. It's this, I need to be better, right? If I get better, then I might be able to be pro. I, I sense that throughout a game. Um, 
And if you mess up, you're stopping me from becoming pro. Now, not everybody has that aspiration, but that common mindset of I need to be as best as I can be, I need to be as good as I can be, and you're holding me back from that, kind of runs through the entire community top to bottom, whether you are at the highest level or you are just now getting into the game. There does seem to be a sense in the general community of any game that has an esports component that you are holding me back and you are terrible. Uh, there is rarely a sense of, you're not good, let me teach you. There's just a sense of, you need to go away now so that I can be better. That is the sense that I get from these multiplayer games. And let's start naming names. Uh, we're talking stuff like League of Legends. We're talking uh, the newest Counter-Strike. We're talking Dota 2. Uh, we're talking even Rocket League. And Rocket League, I feel, is an interesting case by itself because I feel like that game was meant to be fun. There is a, a sense of competitiveness to the game, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't have been popular, but at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about a game where you drive cars and hit a soccer ball with it, right? This is something that happens, I think, at like county fairs or, or rodeos with uh, the demolition derby. Like, that's that's something that they've been doing for a while. At least that's what I've understood. And they turn that into a game that looks like a lot of fun. It's, it doesn't look from the outside like a super serious game like Counter-Strike or Dota or League of Legends does. Or even Overwatch, right? When we're talking about those games, you can get a sense that there is a seriousness to it. And maybe that would explain the toxicity that you get from the online community. But with Rocket League, I feel like it is a game that has that aspect to it. It has the toxic community, at least from what I've understood. But it doesn't look like it should from the outside. At least it doesn't to me. I mean, you've got these little cars with flags on them and they're doing flips in the air. It looks like it's a lot of fun to play. And I still think I want to play it. I don't have the game, but I want to play it. But as an outsider, I'm a little scared because I have heard that there is a toxic online community that demands perfection. So if I go in as somebody that's never played the game before, and if I misjudge how high that soccer ball bounced and I don't get underneath it at just the right time, am I going to be like yelled at, cussed at by uh, random people around the internet? And there is a good possibility that could happen. And that's what I mean by a toxic community. People that make you second guess whether you actually want to play the game. So that is kind of the problem. How do you fix that as a game developer? That's the next question and something that I feel that some of the game developers treat a little bit better than others. Uh, famously, there's uh, companies like Microsoft with Xbox Live that seem to do almost nothing to try to fix the problem. They might have some steps that you can take in place to help uh, make your experience in their space better, 
but ultimately it does not seem to be working. Uh, anytime you hear about like the most toxic online community, the Xbox Live usually comes up. Uh, same with Dota 2 and League of Legends. It's just there is so much anger in these games that it seems almost difficult for uh, people to get into those games, especially if they arrive late, right? If you come in late and you don't know what you're doing, it's very difficult to have the motivation to learn. As a result, you hurt yourself that way. Um, as a game company, as a game developer, you're hurting yourself by not fixing these problems. Uh, you can go the complete opposite way and just not allow people to talk. Uh, I'm trying to think of what Blizzard does here with Hearthstone. It's not fully not allowing people to, to talk in Hearthstone, which is just one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's not a team aspect. Uh, with Hearthstone, you are given... I believe six different dialogue options. You can pick one of these six things and that's all you can say. So the idea is that you won't be able to harass your opponent. Of course, people find ways around that. They pick out this one thing and basically by spamming it, they clearly point out what they're trying to say and it is relatively toxic, basically saying you suck, right? That kind of thing over and over and over again. Um, but to what extent does a company not want people to trash talk each other, right? At what point do you say you suck is okay? You can say that, that's fine. Um, I think it's okay relatively uh, for a one-on-one -on -one game to talk about your opponent, but when you talk about your teammates, I feel like that's a, a different aspect. And I think that should be regulated a little bit more. Uh, some of the ways that they do it is you can report other people. You can basically uh, count on your players to report other players and then try to deal with them that way. But that's not necessarily solving the problem. Uh, they think that it's going to solve the problem, but at the end of the day, I have to have the negative experience first before I can report it to you to fix it. So you're not necessarily preventing the problem, you're trying to fix it after the fact. And I'm not necessarily sure that's the right tactic to go about it, uh, but I'm not entirely sure how to fix the online communities. And I'm, I'm not sure that there is a fix because this has been going on for decades and there hasn't seemed to have been a fix yet. Um, but my question today is not necessarily how to fix it, but to what extent do game developers have to take responsibility for a toxic online community? So let's take uh, Dota 2, which is owned by Valve. To what extent does Valve have a responsibility to try to fix this negative, toxic community, or at least the appearance of it from the general online gaming community from from people that talk about video games and they talk about toxic communities dota 2 comes up a lot so whether it's true or not the perception is there so what responsibility does valve have to take for that perception and right now it seems like valve doesn't 
take any responsibility for that. I rarely hear people say the game developers have to take some action to try to fix this. As a result, the game developers seem to take no responsibility for the way that their online community acts. Uh, like I said, I've noticed a trend that it's mostly esports games that I just don't want to play because I don't want to deal with that kind of community. I, I try to keep a positive uh, outlook on video games and that could uh, get rid of that. I have played games like that before. I played the original Counter-Strike. I, um, I played it comp competitively too. And it was pretty toxic, and I ended up not liking it after a while, and I've never really looked back and said, oh, I missed that. I, I want to play super competitively. Uh, I did for StarCraft, but that was one-on-one, -on -one, and most people were nice there. I didn't see too much hate on StarCraft, at least not when I played. Uh, when I did videos, that's a whole different thing, but when I played the game, I did not get the... Uh, impression that there was this negative um, toxic community that made me not want to play uh, but with other games I do get that impression so to what extent do video game companies have to bear that responsibility that they have created a game that engenders negativity online and I feel like that's not something that they're addressing right now uh, and I think that is something that needs to be addressed in time. Uh, I should mention that other industries are starting to look at it. Uh, I believe there was a big news site. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, they got in trouble for something that was uh, the top rated comment on their article. They wrote an article. People can reply to the article with their comments. And the top rated one uh, was inflammatory and uh, false. It was by the facts, just not true, and it was making people mad. So they decided to take action as a company and change their comment policy so that the comments were hidden behind a button, basically, show comments. And you see a lot of companies starting to take that route, that if you want to look at comments, you can, uh, but that they're not on by default. So they don't bear responsibility as much is at least the argument. But I'm not seeing anything on the gaming side to that effect. So that's kind of the negative aspects of the online community and a couple companies and how they're treating it and how they're not necessarily fixing the problem but trying to make it better in the long run. Um, the problems with that are seemingly infinite. You can't obviously make sure everybody has a good time all the time. Uh, somebody has to win, somebody has to lose, and when somebody loses, they're going to get upset and start lashing out at people. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen every time, but it's going to happen sometimes. So there's not necessarily a way to fix it forever, but I feel like video game companies should bear at least a little bit more responsibility for that aspect of their video game. With that said, let's move on to the positive aspects of the online community. There is definitely a, a good 
portion, I would say a majority of the time, to having an online community, not necessarily just for multiplayer games. Uh, with the multiplayer games, it's a lot easier to see what the online community is doing. With single player games, it's a little bit harder to get into it because if you're not looking for that community, you could easily miss it. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of positive aspects of online communities are, are mods. Uh, that are, Those are modifications to existing games to either try to give a different experience to the game or to improve the game. And video game companies have been using user-created mods, fan-created mods, for a long, long time. Uh, I, I believe as long as basically there's been computer games. I want to say some of the old Doom games and Duke Nukem games were allowing mods and level editors and things like that so that people could change things. Um, with the, well, with the popularization of the internet, and especially like Steam in particular, mods have become so much more popular though. In the old days, it was hard to find mods. Now, they're everywhere. And sometimes, they push it on you almost as soon as you buy the game. I think that the number one company when it comes to modifications that I can think of, uh, that would be Bethesda. They have probably the largest modding community of any gaming company out there. And there are some good aspects to that. There are a lot of good aspects to that. A lot of the times, their online modding community will fix problems in the game that Bethesda could not fix themselves. And although I am trying to say that this is normally positive, I feel like I should point out that Bethesda not only knows that this happens, but I feel like they count on this to happen. Uh, there's been many times that I've looked at a Bethesda game, either Fallout or Elder Scrolls, and the number one mod for the game is a patch to fix problems that Bethesda couldn't fix themselves or didn't fix themselves. And it feels like at this point, since it keeps happening over and over, it feels like Bethesda is not learning from their mistakes and is purposely releasing a game anticipating somebody else to fix it. And I don't think that's a good way to do business. But we're talking about the positive aspects of it here. Uh, with such a large modding community, especially large ones that like uh, Bethesda has, uh, you can experience Skyrim, you can experience Fallout 4 or Fallout 3 or Fallout New Vegas, whichever one's your favorite, uh, in so many different ways that you want to play the game several times through because you want to try it with different mods. This is something that I see a ton. And when I start a Let's Play of it and I ask, uh, hey, is there anything that you guys want? The number one thing when it's a Bethesda game is what mods are you going to use? And I can see the disappointment in their eyes, it, even though I can't see eyes, um, not through text, but I can see the disappointment when I say I'm not going to be using any. I, they just start, like, why? Why would you play it vanilla? Why would you do the what Bethesda did? And 
this is one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk about uh, this main topic today, is that I feel that Bethesda gets too much credit for things that other people have done. And when I start a game, I want to play the developer's version of the game. When it's my first time through especially, I want to play the normal version of the game. I want to get the vanilla experience. If I then like the game, and I think it can be improved on a second playthrough, third playthrough, that's when I start looking at mods. But I always feel that when I install mods, I'm no longer playing the game developer's version of the game. If it has changed graphics, that's one aspect, right? But if it changes gameplay, I feel like it's no longer the same game. So there are so many mods for Bethesda to try to fix certain problems in the game. Some of them are just basic bug fixes. Those are usually the patches that are the number one mod download for the game. But there are other things that change entire gameplay aspects of the game. Uh, so we're not talking about skins. We're not talking about uh, the Skyrim mod to turn dragons into Macho Man Randy Savage and all shouts into farts. We're not talking about that kind of stuff, which is silly and fun, uh, but doesn't necessarily change the game. We're talking about like a, a mod for Fallout 3 so that the first town that you go to by the name of Megaton, uh, they added a bunker in that town to give you all the weapons in the game. They can give you the best weapons in the game when you start the game. Then you're not really playing Fallout 3, you know what I mean? You're playing a heavily modded version of the game in which you're not getting the true experience anymore. And that's something that I've been a real stickler about, uh, at least on my gaming channel. And that's something that I'll probably continue to be a stickler about as I continue gaming, that I don't necessarily want to change gameplay aspects of the game. Uh, I know there was another mod, I believe it turned into a whole game uh, itself, that changed Half-Life uh, so that you could have multiplayer in Half-Life. The actual Half-Life game, not any of the other mods. We're talking actual Half-Life, and you could do it co-op, which defeats the whole purpose of the game. It'd be like doing Portal, like the original Portal co-op. Like, no, this is something that you're supposed to do by yourself. That's kind of the entire point of the game is that you're on this journey by yourself. Like, could you imagine, like, the Stanley Parable, but with, like, five people running around? It would be, it would be silly. It wouldn't be fun. Right? These games are, are, are built for one kind of experience. And although you can change that experience... A lot of times I feel like those companies get credit for those changed experiences. And that's one of the points that I'm trying to make is that they should not get credit for those changes. At least not full credit. They should get credit that they are allowing these changes to happen. That they are allowing the modding community to heavily edit the game that way. But they should not get credit if you enjoyed that mod, at least not full credit. 
because when you play that mod, you're really playing some fan-created alteration to the game. So if you enjoy that alteration, you should give credit to the person that made it, not the person that made it possible to make it, if that makes sense. Then there's, so that's kind of how I feel about Bethesda and their modding community. It's great, but I feel like they should not get as much credit as they do. And a lot of times when I talk to people, they say that their favorite game is a Bethesda title with the caveat that they ended up saying, as long as you heavily mod the game. And I'm like, well, then your favorite game developer is the Bethesda modding community, not Bethesda themselves. At least that's the way that I look at it. Uh, another company that I, I really do need to talk about when it comes to their relationship with the online community because theirs is probably the most complicated out of anybody is Valve. Valve has a very unique uh, relationship with their online community. One that I'm not sure I can really delve into in the amount of time that I have here, but Valve they've been built from the beginning basically on mods. Um, I feel like that's kind of dismissive of Valve, but the more that I look into it, the more I feel like that's true. So what Valve did when they made the original Half-Life, which was the first game that they made, right? They were a spinoff that he, Gabe, who was, um, who was the founder of Valve, he left Microsoft. He was working for Microsoft, left, and almost one of the first things that he did as far as, you know, any of the histories go is that he bought the rights to the Quake engine. Uh, Quake is a game that is very similar to Half-Life if you've never played it. But he bought the rights to the Quake engine and then modified it as Valve. And it became their own engine. So I, I can't really say how much of Valve's, well, Half-Life's engine is directly influenced by Quake. I don't have access to the code, uh, but from what I've heard online, it's about 30% is still Quake, and 70% is what Valve made. So at that point, it's probably their own engine. I get it, but they did not make it from scratch, and I feel like that's an important point to make. Uh, but then they released Half-Life, and they released the mods out to the people. They allowed people to make complete other games out of the Half-Life engine and release it through Valve's distribution platform, which at the time wasn't called Steam. There was something else that was going on at the time. I honestly don't remember its name, but they released it and allowed people to modify it so heavily that it didn't even feel like the same game anymore. So the people that came up with mods ended up making quite a bit of money at the time. Th those uh, include Counter-Strike, right? the original Counter-Strike, and Day of Defeat. Those were the two biggest ones. There was also Team Fortress Classic, which was arguably bigger than them, uh, but that's also a, a kind of its own story. So Valve allowed Counter-Strike and Day of Defeat to be played basically with just a Half-Life license. If you bought Half-Life, you would get access to all these other games 
that were made using the Half-Life engine. So they allowed the community to kind of build itself. And I think that has been a huge aspect of Valve's success is that they allow the community to make their own content and enjoy their own content. At least that's how it started. So I said Team Fortress was kind of an interesting story uh, based on what I can understand because I never played Quake. I just ha didn't have it at the time. I had Half-Life. That was the first one that I heard about. People were talking about this game, so I had to buy it and play it with them. I never heard about Quake. But apparently there was a Quake mod called Team Fortress. And Valve liked Team Fortress so much that they bought the team, that well, they hired the team that made Team Fortress and asked them to basically make the same game, but in the Half-Life engine. And that became Team Fortress Classic, which is what I played because I had, had Half-Life. And I had a lot of fun with it. But to what extent can Valve say that they made Team Fortress Classic? That's something that I feel they get too much credit for. Uh, same with Counter-Strike and Day of Defeat. Because they bought the rights to the software but it doesn't necessarily feel like they made the software themselves. So the video games that they get credit for a lot of the times aren't necessarily things that they made, but things that they um, copied, ported, or just bought the rights to. So it's, it's an interesting aspect for me to look at at the outside since I have heard many times, although not recently, thankfully, that... Valve was the best video game company out there. They were the best game developers in existence. And I could not understand where this was coming from because I felt that Valve did not make games. They released games. They were more of a distributor. Uh, and as they moved more and more towards a Steam-based company and less and less relied on video game creation, it kind of proved my point. And I think that most people see Valve now as a distribution company, not as a software developer. And I think that's the right way to look at it. So when you think of the original Half-Life and you think if you played it then, you probably had a lot of fun with all these mods going on at the time. Uh, you probably had to realize that not everything that you were playing was made by Valve. But Valve ended up purchasing the rights to Counter-Strike and Day of Defeat and releasing it for money. They, they sold it in stores. While you could still play Counter-Strike and Day of Defeat for free if you had Half-Life. So it was a very interesting aspect. Um, I have actually heard Gabe Newell specifically talk about his relationship with the online community. It was a very fascinating like hour of him talking about how he basically enables the online community to make their own content and he profits from it. Um, at the time, it, it sounded genius, but the more that I look at it now, the more that I, it sounds like he's taken advantage of the community. Uh, because there has been a lot of backlash lately over practices that Valve didn't necessarily start, but they kind of encouraged other companies to do. Because 
what they were doing was allowing modifications. If it worked out well, they would pay the, the people money, which is good, right? Like you, you release a free game, it, it's successful, and somebody buys it out, which is good. That, that is good for the people that made that modification. But then they end up selling that same product that you tried to give away for free and we're now making money off of it. And that's where it gets a little sketchy, for me at least. Um, when it comes to what Valve gets credit for, I have always felt that it was too much because I felt that the online community that they engendered, that they created and allowed to make these games made them, not Valve. The, the, the community made them. Valve t has to receive some credit for allowing this kind of stuff to happen, but I don't think that they should get full credit for creating games when somebody made it for free out of their engine and then Valve purchased it, uh, which has happened several times. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about Valve. <laughs> And one of the main reasons that I wanted to bring up this topic of how much credit and how much blame should game companies receive for the output of their online communities. And we didn't even get to talk about topics like uh, fan fiction and uh, message boards and games. Uh, walkthroughs and things like that. I primarily wanted to talk about the main bad things, the biggest bad thing and the biggest good thing. And we can kind of work it out from there because I feel like the question still exists is how much should they receive in terms of credit or blame? And I wanted to point out the biggest thing that most people don't like about the online communities and the thing that people do like about online communities and raise the question from there because I don't have an answer. I don't. I wish I did. How much? I can't give you like a percentage. Valve deserves 75% of the credit for any mods that get created for their game or only 25%. I don't have a percentage. They deserve some, but I, I believe not as much as they get. Because if you go even on Wikipedia and ask, uh, what is a Valve game? What was a game that Valve made? Counter-Strike's going to be on that list. Day of Defeat's going to be on that list. But I feel like they didn't make those games. People made them out of their own spare time, and then Valve bought it. That's not the same. So it's something that I've been thinking about for a while, and the main reason I want to talk about this. And I think that is going to do it for the second topic here. The main topic is now done. And it's time to move on to the wild card today. And I mentioned it before. Uh, I talked about it a little bit last time that I was going to do a Q&A session for the wild card today. Uh, that's uh, not necessarily going to be the format of it, but I'm going to kind of give the story of my channel briefly. And I will answer all of the questions uh, that I got along the way. So I run a gaming channel. <laughs> if uh, you are unaware of that, seeing this somewhere other than YouTube, you might not know. Uh, I run a gaming channel. I do Let's Plays. 
And that's primarily what I do uh, with any sort of content that I create is I try to focus on that. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I'm not that popular. Uh, I haven't checked my su subscriber numbers in a while. Uh, last month was pretty depressing. I think YouTube was fudging the numbers a bit, but I have fun doing it. I have a lot of fun doing it, so I'm going to keep going, and uh, the money is definitely a second or a third concern for me. It's not the primary concern, uh, but I have been doing it for longer than I probably care to admit. Um, let's talk about kind of how I got into it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the people that I was watching uh, when I first heard about YouTube and started watching YouTube videos, uh, went by the name of the Philip DeFranco. That was one of the shows. Uh, he was one of the big shows at the time. Uh, he was running basically a, a news style program, uh, very similar to what he's still doing now. Um, but he would always link something kind of cool that he saw. And the thing that he linked that sparked my channel probably from the very beginning. Um, it's kind of weird to think that Philip DeFranco is partly responsible for my channel, but kind of. Um, he linked a video to a speed run of Super Mario Brothers 1, and it was under five minutes. I don't remember which one it was. The, the record's been broken hundreds of times since I saw the video, but I remember thinking at the time, there's no way to beat Super Mario Brothers in five minutes. But sure enough, he sure did. <laughs> Under five minutes, he beat the original Super Mario Brothers, and I, my jaw was just dropped, like, you, how, what? Right? I had never seen or heard of speedruns before at this point. It just had never crossed my path. Uh, they probably did exist before YouTube, but I feel like they've really taken off in like the past five years. Uh, keep in mind, this was probably like 10 years ago that I saw this video. Uh, just never heard of it. It was amazing to me. So I started watching speedruns and I was trying to go kind of chronologically through big name games that I had never seen beaten before, right? Like Contra, like I had played it, never beat it. Um, didn't know the Konami code as a kid, played it a couple times, so that seemed like a good place for me to start, right? Let's start with like the NES and look at all these speed runs, and now I'll get to experience uh, the end of a game that I could not get uh, before, and that was interesting to me, and I was going through it chronologically, like I said, until I hit a stopping point where I just couldn't make it through a speedrun of the game. No offense to anybody that does speedruns of the game. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it's very interesting. You have a lot of fun doing it, but uh, it just wasn't what I was looking for at the time, and I didn't realize it. And that game was Ocarina of Time. Uh, for those of you that have never watched a speedrun of Ocarina of Time, there's a lot of sideways dashing. There's a lot of noise that goes on that gets very annoying very quickly. And I decided then that speedruns weren't going to be what I wanted to watch anymore. Once I hit Ocarina Time, I was done. I, I didn't want to watch that anymore. Um, I, I still do enjoy speedruns from time to time, but I don't really seek them out. I'm much more interested in what I found later 
thanks to me not wanting to watch a speedrun anymore, and that would be Let's Plays. And Let's Plays have been around for a long time. Uh, they're almost a bad word now for online uh, video creators, as I found out at BlizzCon, <laughs> as I found out at VidCon uh, recently. It's just not seen as uh, necessarily an art form. It's not seen as something respectable. It's just something kind of trashy that people put out there. That's That, that was the impression that I got uh, when I was at VidCon. But I fully enjoy making them, and I fully enjoy watching them. Uh, and when I started watching, there were a lot of names out there uh, that just don't make videos anymore. Uh, there are a couple that still do. Uh, when I started watching uh, the Let's Plays, there were... Uh, I'll start naming names. Why not? Uh, there was Deceased Crab. Uh, he was one of the first ones, as far as I could tell. There was uh, Proton John. Uh, there was H.C. Bailey. Uh, there was Necroscope 86. And there was uh, my favorite at the time, although he hasn't uploaded videos in forever, uh, Moogle FTW. Uh, those were my favorite guys, but I probably went through 30 or 40 Let's Players um, trying to find people that would consistently make uh, content that I would enjoy. And what I would do is I would, uh, what's known as archive binge or um, one Let's Play binge, where I would just watch one Let's Play that was already done, go all the way through, and kind of enjoy it all at once. It, it hadn't occurred to me that I could watch what the people were doing at the time. Um, that's kind of how I run my channel now, but I'll get into that more later. Um, as I was watching all these, I probably spent, well, I don't know how long, countless hours though, watching these Let's Plays, uh, watching other people play games, and just to date myself, I probably shouldn't do this, but at the time, there were no such things as capture cards, or at least Let's Players didn't have access to them. Uh, so I really struggled finding Let's Plays of PlayStation 2 games at the time. That was what I was interested in. I wanted to see Final Fantasy X. I wanted to see um, Dragon Quest VIII. And I really couldn't find anybody that did it. And in fact, the first person that did Dragon Quest VIII, I was watching along with them. And uh, he ended up leaving. I don't know what happened to him. He's, he's long gone. Uh, I watched the first person that did a Final Fantasy XII Let's Play. Same guy. Uh, I watched the first person that did a Final Fantasy X Let's Play, which apparently nobody wanted to do. I'm not entirely sure why. There are some Final Fantasies out there that were legendarily difficult to Let's Play, and I've done them, and I, I just don't get why people thought that. Uh, Final Fantasy 7, they're like, it can't be done! But, like, I'm sure a hundred people have done it, like, this year, let alone um, just all time. But that was what people were saying at the time. Uh, Final Fantasy 10, can't be done! Final Fantasy 12, Dragon Quest 8, no, no Let's Play of this could ever be accomplished. Nobody wants to see it. Uh, but those were my favorite. I loved the RPGs. I, they're my favorite kind of game. They're the ones that I wanted to watch other people play. Uh, because I didn't always want to sit down and play, you know, a 50, 60-hour game. Um, even if it took 50 or 60 hours, I would rather watch somebody else do it. Uh, kind of save me some effort. 
um, especially the completionist ones like H.C. Bailey and uh, Chugga Conroy. Uh, they were a big influence on me. So I started watching Let's Plays, and I knew at some point I was going to have to contribute to this community and give back at least something, at least try. Uh, I enjoyed the content so much. Uh, there were definitely some games out there that uh, were not Let's Played, that I wanted to, to see Let's Played. Uh, the primary one for me was Xenogears. Uh, that was one that nobody was willing to do. That, and uh, if you've seen the game, you can understand why. Uh, so when I did it, I think there were maybe four or five people that had done it before, and I don't mean to toot my own horn or anything like that, but mine was the only one that I could tolerate. Uh, the other people, it was difficult to watch them. Uh, and I tried, I think the furthest that I made it was like 20 episodes in, and then I just had to give up. I couldn't do it. Um, but a lot of people have done it now. Even one of my inspirations has started uh, a Xenogears Let's Play. He's all on his way. I, I mentioned him before, H.C. Bailey. He's, he's in the middle of it. I'm still a fan. I still watch his stuff. Um, he's, uh, he, he's thorough, and I like that. Uh, but I, I figured out as I was watching all these people do Let's Plays that there were uh, quite a few things that I wanted to do that other people were either doing or not doing, right? I had watched so many, 40 or 50 different Let's Players. I had picked up some things that I wanted to do from some and other things I wanted to do from others. And then there were some things that I just went, well, I'm definitely not doing that. Uh, so there were there were a lot of inspirations for me. Um, I, I mentioned quite a few already. Uh, I should mention StarCraft II uh, because that was starting to come up at the time. So before I get into my actual Let's Plays, let's talk about StarCraft. Uh, so I started with StarCraft, and I started purposely with StarCraft. It had recently come out. Um, I actually had a cousin that was playing the beta and was talking about how great StarCraft II was, and I had to get into StarCraft II. So pretty much as soon as the game came out, I bought it. And, of course, my cousin... Uh, who's an older cousin than me and uh, has kids, pretty much stopped playing as soon as the game came out. Uh, he just ran out of time, couldn't do it anymore. Uh, but anyway, we were, I was, I, I bought the game, I was playing, I was having fun, um, and then I figured out that there were competitive games online. So I started watching those, and that's where I'm, I heard about Husky Starcraft and Psy uh, Starcraft, Day 9, HD Starcraft. I think those were the main ones. I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head that I was watching. Um, they were commentators. They did not play the game themselves. Well, Psy Starcraft did, and sometimes HD Starcraft did, but for the most part, what these people did was they... Well, they borrowed, let's say, they downloaded a competitive game at the professional level, rewatched it, and commentated over it. So StarCraft II had allowed you to basically record a game, um, save it as a, 
game exclusive file, upload it to a site, somebody else could download it, load that game up in their StarCraft II game, and they could watch this match. And that's what most of the StarCraft II guys did. They watched and talked about a competitive match that they didn't play. They were basically uh, color commentators. They were basically the announcers of a game uh, while they watched it. And it was kind of fascinating to me. And a lot of my style I still owe to the StarCraft II people, especially Husky StarCraft. Uh, his kind of frantic style is still something that I try to do from time to time. If I get a little frantic during a Let's Play or during a podcast, chances are uh, I got that from Husky. But they were one of the first people to actually start trying to make money doing video game content on YouTube. Machinima had been around, but the StarCraft II people were really very much responsible for the push of an alternative to Machinima. Because at the time, Machinima was Machinima. They weren't necessarily doing just plain gameplay videos. And they, the StarCraft II guys started a side channel uh, called The Game Station. And that ended up turning into Polaris, which turned into Maker Studios, which got bought out by Disney. It's a long story. Uh, but they kind of got together and started making content together. And that's when, I, that's when I finally just resolved to start making videos. And I started uh, with StarCraft II. But instead of doing uh, professional matches that I talked about, um, I felt it was better to basically, um, looking back on it, make a Let's Play of my own multiplayer content. So the idea was that I would play a multiplayer game, come back, rewatch the, the replay of it, and talk about it while I was watching the replay. That was the idea. And it wasn't a big hit. It, it wasn't. Not a lot of people liked my channel. <laughs> I can't say that I blame them. The, the quality is terrible. I really have a hard time watching those videos at all. They're just not good. I don't like them. I don't recommend watching them. But I kind of knew that going in that I was going to encounter a lot of difficulty when I started doing YouTube content. So instead of souring a Let's Play, I thought I would start with StarCraft 2 and kind of get my feet under me, try to figure out what I'm doing. And once I got to that point, I would start doing Let's Plays and not never really look back. Um, there were a lot, at the time when I was starting making videos, Let's Play channels were still primarily single game channels. So if you wanted to watch somebody do Call of Duty, you could go watch a Call of Duty channel. If you wanted to watch somebody play Minecraft, you'd have to go to a different channel to watch somebody play Minecraft. Uh, if you wanted to watch StarCraft 2, you would go to the StarCraft 2 channel, right? How many of the names that I gave you, Husky StarCraft, Psy StarCraft, HD StarCraft, they all had StarCraft in their name. That's because that's all they did. 
all they did was StarCraft. And at some point, you're going to get sick of the same game. And when I started, you could start to see that happening. You could start to see these people kind of going, do I really have to play more StarCraft? Can I play something else? And a lot of them never really got out from under that. I don't think any of them did now that I think about it. Well, Sai StarCraft burnt out completely. Uh, he tried to do other games. Nobody seemed to watch it. And he, w he had recently quit his job to do it full time. So he had to just keep uploading StarCraft 2 until he absolutely hated it and himself. Uh, Husky StarCraft pretty much stopped and became a manager. Uh, I talked about him a little bit before. HD StarCraft, I'm not entirely sure, but pretty sure he doesn't make content anymore either. And that happened to a lot of people. Not a lot of people got out from under that first game that they did. Uh, there's still a lot of people that are still playing Minecraft. It's what made them big, and their fan base refused to let them leave it. Um, Captain Sparkles, for some reason, comes to mind. Uh, that he still just has to play Minecraft all the time. Otherwise, he might not make money. Uh, so I tried to avoid that. I knew that was coming. So I tried very early on to avoid being trapped under the weight of a single game. And I tried to move on. So the first Let's Play that I did was a game that I didn't let's face it, I didn't care as much about that game as I did about others. So I played The Seventh Saga, which most people have never heard of, kind of understandably. It's kind of an obscure title, mostly known for an intense grind that you have to do every time you play the, every time you go to a town. Like, you go to a town, spend a half an hour grinding, go to the next town, spend a half hour grinding, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's a difficult game, mostly because people don't like to grind, and I didn't mind it. And that kind of became a niche of my channel was that I don't mind grinding as much as other people do. Uh, but that was the first Let's Play that I did. Um, I, was, I was still not entirely happy with it. Uh, I, I wasn't fully confident, all that kind of stuff. I was still on a terrible setup. I was on a laptop then with a headset. It's, it was not good. Um, then I moved on to, I believe, Super Mario RPG next. And once I had finished Super Mario RPG, I thought I was ready to start doing the games that I really wanted to do, uh, which was primarily Final Fantasy. Uh, that was a, a franchise that has had a huge impact on my really gaming life. I've done a lot of stuff with Final Fantasy over the years, and I wanted to start doing that series. Uh, but... Because I wanted to avoid getting trapped under one title or one genre, I decided early on that I was going to start splitting things up. So as I was winding down StarCraft, I started moving on to multiple Let's Plays at a time. And that's not something that a lot of other channels do, but I had a... Well, I still have. I had, though, a ton of games that I wanted to play and I wanted to show on the channel, either because I have played it before or I've always wanted to play it and never got the chance. And I wanted to have a variety. So the general idea, and this is kind of how I get into the layout of the channel, uh, the general idea is that 
you're probably not going to like every video that I put out. You're probably not interested in all five or six series that I have going on at any given time. Uh, that's a lot of series that I have going on. There, chances are you're, there's going to be at least a few that you just don't care about whatsoever. That's going to happen. The idea, though, is that any one day, there's hopefully one video that you want to watch. That's the general idea. So if I give a variety, hopefully there's something that you do want to watch every day. That's not good for my YouTube analytics. It's one of the reasons that YouTube doesn't seem to like my channel all that much. Uh, but that's the way that I run the channel. It's that you might not like everything, but hopefully you like one thing. And that's the way that I wanted it to run. Uh, I also run it assuming that people are going to watch entire Let's Plays, like I used to do, where you just sit down and watch Let's Play Final Fantasy IV. And that's all you watch from me. And that's fine. You come to the channel, you watch Final Fantasy IV, you go on your way. That, that's something that does happen. I can see it in my YouTube analytics, rarely, but I can see that. So that's the general idea, is that I want a variety, because there's a lot of games I want to get through. I want something available for you to watch, even if you don't necessarily want to watch everything, and hopefully there's something for you every day. That's the general idea. It doesn't always pan out, but that is how I wanted to run the channel. So over the years, I have tried to keep a variety. I always have at least one RPG going. They are my favorite games. Uh, I have two long slots, as I refer to them. I basically have four slots and then two wild cards. Uh, so I basically have an older, longer game. Uh, the way that I think about it, it's going to be at least 50 parts, and uh, it's at least 10 years old. Then I have a new long game, so less than 10 years old, over 50 parts. Old short games, over 10 years old, anything under 50 parts. And a new short game, which is hopefully uh, under 10 years old, under 50 parts. But uh, yeah, that, that last slot has plagued me a couple times where a game has been longer than I anticipated and suddenly I'm at like 60 parts which means that I've done it for like over six months and that's too long for that. But that's the idea, is to have those four slots and have them be different. I don't always make it super unique every time that I pick a game. A lot of times the games are similar, uh, but by the nature of how long I have two of the slots, there's almost always gonna be an RPG that I'm playing. It is rare that there isn't an RPG that I'm playing. I don't think it's ever happened. I think there's always been at least one RPG that's going. In terms of the other two slots, well, one to two slots that I've always had, they've always been kind of wild cards. Uh, for a long time, Xeno, uh, the Xeno series has been a mainstay of one of my projects, uh, simply because I don't think that they're entirely popular, but I love the game so much that I want to play them all the time. So Xeno Saga, and Xenoblade have been there for a long, long time. I've been playing Xenoblade for almost two years now. I'm still going. We're not done yet. Uh, but that's kind of the way that I look at it. Uh, the, the last slot, it used to be 
kind of something that I would just throw in the air, but lately it has been these other projects. Uh, it has been the streams, the podcasts, and the vlogs. And I think that's going to be the way that it stays from now on. I will hopefully have more time to do all of this stuff as I continue forward. I've said it many times, I have no plans of stopping anytime soon. I am fully enjoying the things that I am doing on the channel, even if I don't necessarily make money. That's never been that big of a concern for me. Like I said, when I started, uh, making money was not really a thing that could happen on YouTube. Like I said, the StarCraft guys were kind of pushing for it, but it was not something that was really a goal in mind for a lot of people. I thought I will start doing this because I enjoy it, and if I make money, that's great. Uh, of course, we all have aspirations of being able to just play video games and get paid for it permanently, and that can be our full-time job, uh, but I knew from the very beginning that was unlikely to happen, and the more that I stay here, the less likely that it seems that that's ever going to happen for me, but I enjoy what I do, and that's all that really matters. So that's pretty much the story of the game or the story of the channel. Uh, I could go into more detailed explanations about individual games and, and stuff like that. Uh, but for the most, most part, that's a pretty good overview of how the channel was set up and how it runs and all those kinds of things. Um, I should probably reinforce the fact that this is not something that I get paid for. This is... Uh, something that's a hobby for me. As a result, I don't have a ton of time uh, to do all the things that other channels do, you know, custom thumbnails and end screens and cards and stuff like that. Uh, advertising, that's not something that I've ever done. Uh, but that is something that I'm still looking into, especially every time I start a new series. Like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll try doing end cards here. Uh, custom thumbnails, though, from what I understand, can take a long, long time to get done, and I just don't have that kind of time. But that is still something that I'm looking into. I'm always trying to improve quality, always trying to make it more fun on the channel for you guys to... Uh, hang out and just listen to me talk and play video games for a while. Uh, I, I always try to keep the viewers in mind, all the listeners in mind, however you experience these games um, and these videos and my content. Uh, however you do, I try to make sure that you have as good of a time as you can. That's kind of the chief motivator of why I make these videos so, and these podcasts for that matter. But I have gone way over my time, so I think I'm going to end it here, and let me go ahead and plug myself a little bit. So, if you have enjoyed what you have heard today, feel free to leave a like. If you are on my YouTube channel, feel free to subscribe. If you are listening to this through a different podcast app, please give me a rating. It will help out with the uh, visibility of the ScubaCast. Uh, it is now officially on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify and all the major ones, it seems. All the major uh, podcast apps, thanks to Anchor.fm. I really, I'm, I'm not paid by them. I just really want to thank them. That, that was a nightmare for me, and they got it done. Uh, so I hope you guys 
have enjoyed the podcast. Oh, Patreon. If you guys do want to help, I keep on forgetting about that. If you guys do want to help decide what is going to be our next topic on the Scuba Cast, uh, you can do that through Patreon. Also, check out my Twitter and Instagram should you have the time. Uh, Twitter uh, is where I kind of keep it more official. Instagram's a little bit more personal, though. So th- those are all of my uh, all of my plugs. I-, I got no more. I hope you guys have enjoyed this scuba cast. I've been Baller Scuba. I've been joined by No Notes. We went through it uh, pretty well, I think. I hope you guys have enjoyed this scuba cast. I hope you laughed. I hope you learned. I hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening.